said Karen said Amy's family's new shelter in the northern settlement is really small and cramped and Amy said why say that behind my back say it to my face if you're going to say it but Karen denies it completely and was saying to Tish that Sheila only said that because she's jealous what do you think um this is outside my area of expertise as an artificially intelligent teaching device suggest you use this interpersonal dilemma to enhance your learning program fine pod define friendship Orson Welles said, We're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for a moment that we're not alone. Anyone who's gone to a cinema and sat next to someone who chats, looks at their phone, rustles sweet wrappers and fidgets throughout the film, will know that Orson was wrong. Sometimes being alone is a pipe dream we can only wish for. Friendship in the old world used to consist of interconnected social groups who bonded over a shared experience. It could be a hobby, shared interest, or simply that they were thrown together in the same school year because they were born within a few months of one another. And making friends as an adult is hard anyway and scary. You have to talk to new people and make them like you from scratch. It's not worth it. Friendship on the new world is a much trickier affair, as the likelihood of finding a person with a shared interest to you is greatly reduced when the entire human race consists of just a few thousand people. Is there anyone else who likes kayaking or Belgian surrealist sculpture? No, that's literally just you, I'm afraid. And besides, kayaking requires water, which is incredibly scarce, so will have to take place entirely in VR headsets, which isn't quite the same, but is much drier. I've been watching a lot of Terry Nation's 1975 series Survivors recently and it's seeping into everything I write and think. It tells the story of a plague which wipes out the majority of humanity, leaving only one in every 5,000 people alive. So Britain's population is roughly 10,000 people. It's at turns incredibly bleak and wonderfully warm and hopeful. I'd put it about halfway between Russell T Davis's recent show Years and Years and Threads on the bleakness scale. Something which really struck me about Survivors is that one of the first things the survivors of the death seek out, alongside the obvious food and shelter, is companionship. They immediately build communities, settlements and pseudo-families. This rings true, we are social creatures and friendship is important to us. And as our guest in this episode of No Planet B is from Friends of the Earth, friendship seemed a good theme. Friends of the Earth is a name I really love, I think because it highlights what shitty friends we've been to the Earth so far. When it comes to our relationship with the planet we walk around on, humans really are the worst kind of fair-weather friend who only gets in touch when they want something and then, when you need something in return, are strangely uncontactable. The sort of friend you make plans with weeks in advance and then, when you check in on them the night before, they cancel on you. Well, (laughs) when would you have cancelled on me if I hadn't contacted you, Louise? Tell me that! Friends of the Earth is an international network of organisations founded in 1969 in San Francisco by David Brower, Donald Aitken and Gary Soucy. They now have branches in 74 countries. Friends of the Earth England, Wales and Northern Ireland was founded in 1971. One of their first campaigns was about not single-use plastic but single-use glass. They dumped 1,500 glass bottles in front of the headquarters of soft drinks giant Schweppes to protest the company's non-returnable bottles policy. Since then there have been Save the Whale 
campaigns, protests about pollution levels and mahogany extraction in rainforests, and an incredible campaign in 1994 with a billboard made of litmus paper and the text, This is litmus paper. When acid rain is falling, you should see red. Let's hear from this episode's guest, Rachel Kennelly, international climate campaigner for Friends of the Earth England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Hi, my name is Rachel Kennelly and I'm the International Climate Campaigner for Friends of the Earth, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. It's, it's my job title and I love it. So I work on, well fundamentally I work on trying to stop as much as climate change as possible um, and what I do is at Friends of the Earth is try and make sure that we are taking into the whole, into account or the whole global context of climate change. So um, you know, it can be very easy to just think about climate change in our everyday experiences and how it's going to affect us as, as individuals. And that is a really important thing to think about. And there are going to be impacts in the UK, like there probably will be kind of changes to food prices and there probably will be uh, like increases in flooding and things like that. But actually, if you look internationally, climate change is affecting people right now. So we've already seen people being forced from their homes by the impacts, having their livelihoods undermined. Um, it really is a life and death situation for people now and my job is to try and make sure we're bringing that international context, that kind of that very human reality of climate change into all the work we do in the UK and making sure that we don't kind of focus too narrowly on just the impacts within our borders. The impacts of climate change are primarily affecting people far away in other countries that live lives very different to ours. That's not universally true, like Japan last year was hit by a huge heat wave, like I think tens of thousands of people were hospitalised in Tokyo, like so the impacts are coming to kind of uh, countries that look a lot like ours and the heat wave we had uh, here last summer was obviously um, while I know lots of people enjoyed going out in the sunshine, it had huge repercussions for farmers and livelihoods and livestock and things like that. Um, but yeah, the really severe impacts, so like uh, increased cyclones and hurricanes um, or the in- increased intensity of cyclones and hurricanes, they tend to be things that happen elsewhere. Um, and there's also with kind of richer, wealthier countries living up to their responsibility for climate change, those countries actually cause the vast majority of climate change. So if you take a snapshot now, you will see that kind of China is the biggest emitter kind of today of of, uh, climate pollution, of carbon dioxide. But if you look historically, rich countries like uh, EU countries and the US are responsible for almost 80% of climate changing emissions. So if you take the, like it's oversimplifying things to point at China and go, they need to cut their emissions, because they're doing the worst now. It's like, but historically, this responsibility is a lot of it is countries like the UK's fault, and thus we have this historic responsibility to cut carbon emissions as well and support other countries to do it. Because uh, so the people who are worst affected by the impacts of climate change are the poorest people in the world, and they're the people who didn't cause climate change. So you have this horrible inequality uh, and this horrible kind of unfairness in that the people who cause climate change aren't suffering from it yet but the people who didn't cause it are suffering right now and there's a responsibility for the people who did cause it to help address that and sort it out you know because we often get people writing in and saying we're not we shouldn't do anything until india and china are doing things and you know the analogy i like to use is that is like blaming india and china for climate change and asking them to sort it out first is like blaming it's like bringing on 
a reserve football player for the last 30 seconds of the match and then blame them for losing. And it's like, they may not be, they may not have played brilliantly in that 30 seconds, but you have to look at what all the other players were doing for the rest of the match, and they're the people that lost it. Friends of the Earth actually started in the US um, the year before um, they started in the UK, and the way we differ from other environmental groups is that we have a very strong focus on environmental justice. So um, throughout our history you can see lots of campaigns where we have campaigned for kind of the very traditional interpretation of the environment, so mahogany and orangutans and things like that, and forest preservation, uh, acid rain, killing forests, things like that, that are very kind of classic kind of environmental issues. But we've also always done kind of it from a very human perspective, so putting people at the centre of uh, the environment, because we really believe that kind of human, or everybody should have or does have a right to a happy, healthy environment um, and a life of a high quality within that. So we've done a lot of work in the UK mapping um, which are the most environmentally uh, or the most environmentally degraded areas. And if you look at if you map that against kind of income and quality of life, then there's often a high correlation. So, um, and that's not a coincidence, right? That's that dirty infrastructure, roads, incinerators, coal mines, all the stuff that causes the most environmental destruction is normally forced into poorer areas. So you have, even within London, so you have the dirtiest roads with the most air pollution are where the poorest people live. So you have a direct, and that obviously there are health impacts of that, so you have already poor populations or already populations who are marginalised or vulnerable, kind of having environmental problems kind of layered on top of all the other problems that they're facing. So it's kind of this building mass of kind of different layers of kind of oppression or different layers of things that are affecting their lives. You see it in South Wales. So South Wales, big coal mining area in the past, terrible for people's lungs, uh, really bad for people's health. Um, and then what was happening a few years ago was that they were trying to build lots of incinerators in the same areas, which, huge amounts of pollution there. And these were incinerators for basically London's rubbish. So, but we wouldn't want incinerators in London, so, or more incinerators in London, so we would ship our... Basically, you're looking at the southeast shipping, a relatively rich area in the southeast shipping its rubbish to a poorer area to be burnt, and they have to deal with the pollution. So that's kind of it on a UK scale. That happens a lot. You also see these big uh, correlations between houses affected by flooding and income. It tends to be poorer people that live in floodplains and can't deal with the consequences. Um, there's obviously there's a there's a race element as well, right? That um, if you're a person of colour, if you're from a BME community, you are more likely to be affected by environmental problems in the UK than if you're a white person. Like, there's there's lots of layers um, to kind of, like, how these... how the environment and kind of injustices, social injustices interact. Uh, and obviously, internationally, that's the, the same thing. So, um, yeah, the poorest in the world are affected by climate change most in a very real kind of life and death sort of way it's not inconvenient it's their food supplies or whether their house is still there um whereas the people who cause climate change relatively rich european and american countries climate change is much more 
of a kind of a distant problem for us. Um, it's still not a distant problem, it's still quite, you know, it's something that's happening now, but it's not affecting us in the same way at all. So Friends of the Earth is always kind of like centred that sort of injustice uh, and trying to tackle that at the centre of its, its work, which means at the moment oh, we work on many, many things. One of our greatest achievements was in 2008, we got the world's first Climate Change Act, which was the first piece of legally binding kind of climate legislation in the world that the UK government passed, and that was committing the UK to legally binding uh, emissions reductions targets. And that was really groundbreaking and has been copied in countries all over the world since then. That was brilliant. It now needs reviewing and looking at, and that's something we're obviously taking up now because science has moved on and climate change has moved on. And those targets aren't strong enough, but that was still the fact we have that piece of legislation like really changed the face of the world in a quite significant way. So that's something we're particularly proud of. One of the really interesting things about climate change is that people somewhat naturally interpret it as quite an apocalyptic thing and there is definitely an apocalyptic element to it and as I said like it is having horrific effects on people right now around the world but actually the things we need to do to tackle climate change will actually lead us to a better society and future as well so it's not like we'll have to destroy society or kind of everybody sacrifice everything to solve this problem it's like actually we could build an amazing bright beautiful future that's really good for everybody and sort climate change at the same time and that's a really positive hopeful thing it's not like climate change is our only problem right we've got increasing inequality we've got kind of huge rates of poverty in the uk we have people not being able to heat their homes and afford to eat at the same time like there's we have all these problems within the UK and a lot of these can be fixed with changes to how we're working as a society that will also fix climate change. We've also been doing this piece of work on actually yeah, how leaving the EU will affect the UK environmentally. Um, so Friends of the Earth were the first charity to take a stance on Brexit and to, just, to actually encourage its supporters to vote one way or the other. And that was... Um, a very daring thing to do and we got in quite a lot of trouble from the charity commission for it um, because it was seen as a political act um, which as a charity we're not allowed to be party political we have to be kind of completely uh, bipartisan you know the, the way we came to that conclusion and why we think we were completely right in doing that was that we assessed actually leaving the EU or staying in the EU which is better for the environment. So there was no political or ideological kind of backing to it. It was purely from an environmental standpoint, which is better. And from that standpoint, staying in the EU was better for the environment. And that's what we encouraged our voters to do. And after we came out and said that, lots of other charities, NGOs lined up and said the same thing, uh, which was really great. But really, whichever way people voted, whether we whether people voted to remain or leave, the current deal that's being talked about and discussed with regards to environmental legislation is not what anybody voted for. Basically about 95% of our environmental legislation in the, in the UK comes from the EU. So it would be a huge change. Things like 
people might remember that over the last few decades like our coastal waters have got much cleaner and our beaches have got much cleaner a lot of that is eu legislation before that our beaches were a bit gross and we used to put a lot of sewage directly into the sea which is not ideal for swimming or wildlife like nobody's enjoying that so you know there's some real kind of tangible changes that the eu has helped the uk make for kind of people and the environment really so when we leave the eu the kind of there has been this big debate about what legislation from the, what environmental legislation comes over into e, into uk law how that's implemented obviously we're campaigning to make it stronger right that actually um when we move this legislation over that we actually have an opportunity to make it better for the uk which is would be amazing and the there is going to be an environment bill which will be processed over the next few months which will cover things like an environmental watchdog in the UK to make sure we can enforce our environmental legislation, things like that. So there are things in place to make sure that our environmental legislation doesn't just disappear when we leave the EU and it turns into some sort of Mad Max fly-tipping beach sewage uh, (laughs) um, horrible scenario. But a lot of that needs strengthening and a lot of that needs improving. The interpretation of some of the principles is being watered down quite a lot in the in the lawmaking process. So there is a lot of campaigning to be done to make sure we maintain what we already have and hopefully improve it. In a dazzling display of bad friendship, Tesco were recently tackled about their own brand, Flushable Wipes, which had a small warning on the back reading, harmful to aquatic life with long-lasting effects. Tesco have since said the wipes aren't harmful to aquatic life after they have been flushed, but we do understand how this looks a bit confusing. Yeah, you might say that, Tesco, since it's a baffling mess of contradictions. Hello, everyone. Thank you for attending this press conference. Cost Save Supermarket just wanted to clear up all the recent confusion about claims on our packaging. Our new improved flushable wipes are flushable in the sense that they can physically be flushed, but they absolutely should not be. Dear God, don't do that. Some more things to reiterate and clear up. Our dental floss has been found to contain several corrosive substances which might lead to tooth loss, but only in humans. That's why they've been labelled safe for use. Sorry if that was confusing. There was an asterisk next to the word safe which led you to the back of the packaging where there was a QR code which led you to a website where the whole thing was explained in complete and legally absolving detail. But again, totally sorry if that wasn't immediately clear. Our new lightweight stepladders are made of dried pasta. You can theoretically climb them, but we hugely suggest you don't. They're really intended to be sort of decorative stepladders. Just to reiterate, climb away, perfectly safe, but injuries are likely to be sustained, so please don't. Hope that clears up any confusion. We completely refute the claim that our new chewable children's toy range is a dangerous choking hazard and an accident waiting to happen. Yes, there are lots of small parts about the size of a child's throat, but, and this is very important, no children have died as yet. So the claim on the label that they are 100% safe is currently completely true. Sorry if that wasn't clear. 
And finally, to clear up all confusion, we're delighted to announce that as of the new year, all our packaging will be written in a combination of binary and Esperanto. We're hoping that will make things easier for our customers who we really care about and value. Thanks very much. I won't be taking questions. Please feel free to file your way out. Oh, and just to let you know, the exit signs are not positioned by the exits, and where it says fire escape over there actually leads to a stationary cupboard. Okay, thanks, bye. my interview with Rachel Kennelly from Friends of the Earth. So we have the Climate Change Act which kind of mandates us to cut emissions by a certain amount by 2050, needs improving but we do have that. But then we also have completely contradictory laws as well. So we have a law called um, the Maximising Economic Recovery Act which requires us to extract fossil fuels, oil and gas onshore and offshore, so the North Sea, oil and gas or things like fracking and there is a requirement like a legal requirement that the government put in place for companies to extract fossil fuels so we have incredibly contradictory bits of legislation that different governments have put through and yeah so currently it is very difficult to campaign against like for the you know for the shutting down of north sea oil because we have a law that says we have to dig it up which is yeah, probably not what we need right now if we only have a few years left to tackle climate change. The, so the UK, the UK government spends a lot of money on fossil fuel companies, so oil and gas companies in the North Sea. So we give them tax rate cuts, we help them with decommissioning costs, we help with them with like cleaning up their mess. We give them, basically we give them a lot of money and it means that they don't pay much tax in return, right? In fact, I think, in, I think it's 2015, 2016, we actually paid them more than they put back into the Treasury because the tax rates are so generous to them. There is a tax rate that's called the, I think it's the Petroleum Revenue Tax, currently at 0%. It's a good job we don't need any more money as a country that we could be getting from them, their oil companies. Um, but part of this is because there is this legal requirement to make sure that that oil is being drilled. So we're kind of, these laws and these tax rates kind of have us over a barrel that we need to, we have to be extracting, extracting the oil despite the fact that we can't burn it because it will cause catastrophic climate change. And we have to pay those companies a lot of money to keep them doing it, which means we don't get as much money to spend on things that we really need, like working out how Scotland and particularly Aberdeen transitions from an oil-based economy to something cleaner and greener that will be so all those workers aren't left behind when that industry eventually dies. Because you can't leave them kind of to cope with that by themselves. We need kind of a transition for those workers in those communities. That's something we could be spending some money on. Not giving tax cuts to multi-billion pound companies that are destroying planets. Through various different means, we are more aware than ever of how dangerous climate change is, of how much plastic there is sloshing around in the sea, of how much air pollution kind of people who live in cities are breathing in. Um, you know, we're really aware of quite how bad this is all getting. And then lots of people are presenting have a bamboo straw as the solution and 
those two things are clearly not that's not a proportional response to the scale of the crisis that kind of we as uh, people are facing um and especially not when you add in things like increasing inequality and like health issues and kind of all those other things at that point bamboo cutlery starts looking a little bit ineffective um and it's not that you know making those changes in your personal life is a great thing and it shows momentum and it shows you know your your kind of you're voting with your money you're supporting things that need to be supported because innovation does start small that's fine but yeah they don't feel proportionate and that is where there is really it is only through political will that those changes will happen um a lot of the solutions to the problems we face are we've known about for quite a long time some of them since the 70s and so if we've known about a solution since the 70s you have to look at why we haven't been putting that in place since the 70s and at that point it becomes very clear it is to do with political will and where the people with the power are choosing to put their focus and their money and their support and then you can you look at things like tax breaks for oil companies and planning regulation that favors fracking over onshore wind and you start seeing that actually this is it's a political problem in the way our system is currently set up and reusable coffee cups are fantastic and people ought to be applauded for using them i use them they're great but the only way significant change is going to be happen is through forcing change within that political system and creating that political will to make those changes there's lots of different things that people need to do so there's all the very traditional things like obviously voting based on policies not based on kind of inherited ideology and things like that there's talking to your mp whichever party they're from making sure they, that they know your concerns it's things like that that kind of need doing there's things like signing petitions and taking kind of that sort of large-scale action with hundreds of thousands of other people to show things that you want but really a lot of the most effective ways of creating change and i think groups like extinction rebellion and the school strikes have really shown this recently is you do things with other people as groups like they're basically the only groups that have really created big scale change in the world is groups of people coming together and campaigning together kind of from a grassroots level and you know that's where the civil rights movement started i mean it's kind of the way that friends of the earth believes in creating change so we have local groups all over the country and we're just setting up new groups in certain areas that are very much climate focused so they're called climate action groups and they are the idea is that we support groups of concerned citizens in for example canterbury to come together and work out what they want to change in their local area to stop climate change so whether it's looking at transport or buildings or heating or more gardens or kind of getting people to cycle to work rather than drive things like that and supporting them to create those changes in that area and it's only through that sort of change scaled up obviously to a national level and um, that will kind of make politicians have the political will and feel they are able to create the changes that are necessary you know, i suppose with the with oil and gas companies is a good example right if you look at some uh, company like bp bp definitely has more power than i have in a whole lot of ways 
And so it's only through combining with lots and lots and lots of other people that I would be able to kind of start claiming some of that power back and having a more balanced debate against whether we ought to be kind of paying BP and others to extract oil, which is causing climate change. So yeah, it's that political movement and doing things, kind of getting together with people and kind of creating change that way, I think is the most effective way of doing it. It can also be fun, which is nice. I love the school strikes. I've been to a couple of their protests here in London as kind of like a stewarding adult type person. And they are just fantastic. They're so inspirational that they, I mean, one, they have so much energy, which, I mean, I'm only 33, but halfway around needed to sit down. And their demands are, you know, for people who do not have, I think it's quite easy for people like me who, you know, live and breathe climate change and policy for so many years that... You, their demands are, you know, they're quite top line, but they're so ambitious. They're not kind of getting bogged down in detail. They're like, yeah, this is actually the scale of change we need. We're going to aim high. We're not going to kind of be like, hmm, is this pragmatic? They've seen the scale of the crisis and they've gone, this is what we need. This is what we're demanding, which is fantastic. Um, and they are, they're so articulate as well I don't know where they get their confidence from I did not have that level of confidence at their age at all but we took some Greta Thunberg spoken parliament recently and we we invited some young people from one of our youth programs to come in and ask questions Uh, and one of the guys Yusuf um, asked this amazing question and he was like it was so articulate, he was just like, how can MPs know what's happening in, like, in my country? I'm from Ghana, people, like, MPs know what's happening in my country. And yet, last year you voted to expand Heathrow Airport. How can you know that and behave like that? And, like, it was just like, yeah, you've just, you've completely summed up exactly how a lot of the contradictions that happen in Parliament and a lot of the kind of the problems with that the UK is very good at talking the good talk, especially about climate change and climate leadership. And actually what we do is completely different. And we have such a double standard as a country on that. And we're just hiding from the reality of it. And they're so, yeah, these these young people are so to the point on that, that it is... Yeah, it's really refreshing. So we are currently running a series of events around the country called Groundswell, which are you can find out about on our website, and they are about taking climate action uh, in your community, whatever your community, your local area wants to do. We also have a series of about 150 local groups all over the country. You can find them on our website. There's some some are big, some are small. They're kind of they're all in different states and have different statuses so it's good to get in touch and see if there's anything there that you want to do you can always set up your own local group as well but I think the most important thing is um, yeah you can also kind of we have uh, social media our website you can join our mailing lists we have a lot of kind of petitions and things and that's the our mailing list is the best way to find out about what we're doing on a week by week basis and take part in actions like that but really it's taking action with people or taking action in communities near you, whatever they are, doesn't have to be Friends of the Earth, as long as you're kind of taking action and kind of helping make that political pressure happen, then that's all good. 
You can follow Friends of the Earth on Twitter, at Friends underscore Earth. There are also Twitter handles for different branches of the charity in different countries. Make sure to search for yours. If listening to Rachel has you fired up for helping the planet and you'd like to get involved in your local group, visit friendsoftheearth.uk for details. Before I leave you, I want to quickly bring your attention to two friends of the show, Tom Crowley, who did our brilliant No Planet B artwork and graphic design, and Odin Hill-Marson, who wrote our theme music and stings. I've had a lot of people contact me asking about them, so do go and follow Tom Crowley on Twitter, at Tom Crowley. If you like this show for the sketch comedy, he has a brilliant sketch comedy podcast called Crowley Time, which you should definitely check out. All the fun sketch comedy, none of the scary climate change stuff. Odin Hilmarsson is an Icelandic composer based in the UK. I sent him some recordings I'd made of the chants at one of the school strikes for climate and he composed our wonderful No Planet B theme around them. You can follow him on Twitter at Odin the Hole and listen to more of his compositions at odinhilmarsson.bandcamp.com. Thanks so much to all of you for downloading No Planet B so far. I really enjoy making it. If you are enjoying it, please do consider giving it a nice review on iTunes. That really does help me. I'm a one-man band making this, so any nice words you can throw my way are hugely appreciated. You can also tweet the podcast at No Planet B Pod. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century Italian friar, said, There is nothing on this earth more to be prized than true friendship. But he probably said it in Old Italian, which gave it even more poetry and gravitas than it already has. What about this earth? Does the same apply here? There is no evidence to suggest Thomas Aquinas predicted or took into consideration the sweeping changes humanity would wreak on their planet and the effects this would have on interpersonal relationships, being as he lived in a time before the Industrial Revolution and didn't know what plastic was. The Industrial Revolution was... Uh, Pod, pause information playback! Oh my god, now Tish is saying that Sheila has stolen Amy's best top and worn it at Apocalypse, you know, the nightclub on the Outer Hemisphere. It's happy hour all the time because it's permanently midnight, it's this whole thing. Well, anyway, Sheila has said that if Tish doesn't apologise, she's going to the water marshal and having all Tish's family's water privileges revoked, which is a bit of a scandal, to be honest. Sleep mode. No Planet B was written and performed by me, Gemma Arrowsmith. Our theme was composed by Odin Hill-Marson and our artwork is by Tom Crowley. Incidental music is by Kevin MacLeod. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 